Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be with you here today as we continue in our study of the church. As we do so, we'll be discussing another topic closely related to what Pastor Josh covered last week, and that is the topic of discipleship. We'll be jumping through a few different passages today, so you'll have to bear with me. But as we begin, let me just be upfront and talk about my natural disposition towards the type of group effort we'll be discussing today. Um, if you are like me, the words you hated to hear more than anything else in school were the words group project. I loathed hearing those words come out of my teacher's mouth. Now, why would I loathe such a simple thing, you might ask? Well, if you ask that, you're probably one of the reasons why I loathed them. Because you know, you know that as soon as those words come out of your mouth, you're about to be sitting with a group of people that will force you to come, of one, come to one of two realizations. One realization, and this was a very common one, is upon looking at your group mates, you quickly understand that you're carrying a lot of dead weight in this group. A good portion of that group's not going to do a thing to earn a grade. They're just going to rely upon you to do about 90% of the work. In the end, they'll get the same credit as you, and you'll just be loaded down with that burden. The other realization, this one was always a little more hurtful to my own pride, was a realization that would come a little bit more slowly. It was the realization that came as I looked at the eyes of my partners and would realize, I am that dead weight. I am that person they were dreading hearing a part of their group. And I was the one they were thinking, yeah, maybe Ben shouldn't be given any real responsibility for this one. One of those two things was basically my expectation with any group project. And so I went into group projects with that sort of cynicism. And many of you, or at least some of you I trust, shared that cynicism, cynicism of group work and simply were forced to bear and grin it and, or grin and bear it rather and, and move forward knowing that thankfully group work was the rare exception in school growing up. Thankfully, most of the work really was just dependent upon you and you never had to be exposed for your weaknesses. You never had to be relied upon to doing the work for other people. Yet the fact is, as rare as it is growing up as a kid, group work is the name of the game when it comes to most things we do in life. We are forced to daily do work with other people. Whether it's work within our own families that can sometimes frustrate us, uh, work in the place of our employment where there are those employees that do much and those who do little, and even, as we'll see here today, work within the church. In all these areas, there is a tendency for many of us to try to find those areas where we can just grin and bear it or find a way to remove ourselves from the group, thinking that if we can just leave it up to our own abilities, that certainly life would be easier, certainly success would be easier to find. This can be true at times in various facets of life, but it is far from the case when it comes to church. Because as painful as it is to say for some of us, the fact of the matter is, is that your faith is a group project. And the call every single one of us has been given as Christians is a call to work with everyone here in particular and do so knowing not only do they need us, but we need them. Because while we may be excelling in some portions, we will be the dead weight in others. While we may be flourishing at some seasons in our life, we will be in desperate need of resuscitation at others. And it is only when we understand 
the call that we're discussing today, that call of discipleship, that we can live, that, live out our calling and grow as Christ intended. As we examine this today, we'll be in three passages. The first, we'll be discussing the call of discipleship, which is given to all of us as believers. The second, we'll be looking at the context in which that discipleship was intended to take place. And then finally, we'll be discussing the work. And my hope is that as we see this, we might understand both the basic calling that Jesus gives, but also what that calling looked like in real life, on the ground in the early church, and what that means for us today. With that being said, let me go and open us up in prayer, and you can go and turn to Luke chapter 9, as that will be our first text. Bow with me in prayer, if you will, as we begin. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for what is hopefully a breath of fresh air that is stepping into this building, singing songs of praise to you, seeing brothers and sisters in Christ doing the same. We pray, Lord, that we might rightly appreciate the gift that this church is to every one of us. Might we rightly appreciate the gift of community. God, community is not always easy. It is not always fun. And discipleship, as we'll discuss today, is also neither always easy nor fun. But it is a gift. And it is an essential part of who we are. God, I pray that as we go over this concept today, we might walk away as more devoted disciples. God, we live in a world that is full of people that are devoted to all sorts of wicked ends. And even as we recognize the anniversary of 9-11, we see a very real example of what those devoted to evil can accomplish and have accomplished. But God, might we strive to not be overcome by the wicked devotion of others, but might we strive to be known for our own devotion. Devotion not simply to our country, but devotion to you, God. And in so doing, might we trust that you can accomplish far greater work than we could ever imagine. But Lord, might we take this call seriously, and might we be faithful to fulfill it. As always, God, my prayer is for any unbeliever here, Lord, that they might heed the call of discipleship today. Might they, for the first time, understand their need of you. Might they place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Might you cause that gospel to be real and be clear in their mind for the first time this morning. For my brothers and sisters, might this be a call to our own discipleship, a review of our identity, and a reminder of what this means for us day in and day out. We love you, God. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And it is to his glory, to his praise, and in his name we pray these things. Amen. We begin with the most basic facet, of this concept of discipleship, and that is the call given to every believer. There are a number of passages we could turn to to see this call, to hear this call from the words of Christ, but one of the most famous is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. In order to appreciate the weight of Jesus' words he is offering, we need to go back a little before then and pick it up in verse 18. There in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, we begin this discussion. It happened that while he, that is Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. If you've read this passage before, you understand the significance of it. That is 
the significance of how Jesus is defining his mission, and you understand how surprising this definition would have been to his followers, the disciples. For they rightly were proclaiming him to be the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah. But this idea of his crucifixion was far from what they had expected. Yet Jesus insists upon this concept as being key, essential, to who he was and what he was there to accomplish. We, of course, understand this on this side of the cross, that apart from that crucifixion, apart from that resurrection, we would be hopeless. But the violence of this imagery, the insistence upon speaking of this being a defining part of Christ's mission, would have been, needless to say, off-putting and quite shocking. Yet as surprising as that element was, what is perhaps just as surprising is that Jesus uses the same imagery to define what makes up a disciple, to define a key element of every single person that would claim to be his follower. We see that element come through in that subsequent calling. Again, pick it up in verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Again, this violent imagery would have been hard enough to accept when Jesus is applying it to himself. It's an entirely different ballgame when Jesus then applies it to you. And says, as surprising it is to hear me say that I take up my cross, well, actually, you have to do the same thing. Anyone who wishes to follow me, Jesus says, must be this devoted. They too must die. Now, we, of course, understand that Jesus was not literally telling his disciples that they must be crucified alongside of him. That wasn't the point of Jesus. Rather, the call that Jesus was offering was this call to death to self, a death to anything else other than devotion to Jesus Christ. And this is far from the only time that Jesus speaks to this level of devotion that is to define a disciple. You can see this in other passages passages that include just later on in the same chapter in Luke 9. Skip ahead to, say, verse 57. There in verse 57 of the same chapter, we read they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus here doesn't use the imagery of the cross, but the same level of devotion is, is clearly on display, isn't it? Let the dead bury the dead. Do not look back once you have put your hand to the plow. Do not lose sight of how completely devoted you must be to me. You turn to other gospel passages, such as Matthew 16, 24 through 26, and you see the same language over and over used where Jesus is by all means quite blunt when he speaks of the calling given to anyone who would claim to be a disciple. This claim... This call, I should say, is one 
in which it requires the follower of Jesus to understand that their identity is not who they were plus Jesus. It's not, I'm a resident of Bethlehem and I also follow Jesus. For us, it's not, I'm a proud American and I follow Jesus. It is, I follow Jesus, the end. That is the identity of every believer. And it requires this shocking level of devotion. It requires this willingness to die to self, to forego whatever other kingdoms we would naturally pursue, that of wealth, that of our own family, and put it all aside for the sake of Jesus. Now to us, this language might seem severe, and perhaps to soften the blow, we might say, well, yes, but this really was just for those first disciples, right? We don't call ourselves disciples. This was just for the twelve. But when you take a step back and read through Scripture, no, you understand that this new identity is the same identity, the same language that's applied to all followers of Jesus. For Jesus is not just simply saying, if you wish to follow me here in my earthly ministry, this is what you must do. He is saying, if you want to identify as a disciple of me, a disciple of Christ, this is the devotion. This is the calling. In case we're prone to overlook that, it's valuable to understand that it's this phrase, this word disciple, that that is first adopted by followers of Jesus. As many of you perhaps already know, it's, it's not until later on in the history of the church in the book of Acts that we see the name Christian applied to Christians. Before that, that which happens all the way in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, We see that starting at this point in time and moving forward, anyone who claimed to follow Jesus identified themselves first and foremost as one of his disciples. Not just the twelve. And so if you, for instance, turn over to Acts. In Acts chapter 6, you see one of these many references to this new identity of all believers. From Acts chapter 6, a passage famous for the choosing of the seven, this First look at deacons, some argue. We read in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. Now, who are these disciples that are increasing in number? Are these the twelve? Are they just adding a few more to the group? No. When it speaks of disciples increasing in number, we understand this is just another word for Christians. These are converts who, as a result of their conversion, are now identified as disciples. The same identity, as I mentioned earlier, changes only when you get to a passage like Acts chapter 11. And you don't need to turn there necessarily. But in Acts chapter 11, included in these details of the historical account of the church, we read in verse 25, And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples there were first called Christians in Antioch. Again, to us, reading this, it seems nothing more than just a quick footnote, a historical reference. But it is valuable in the course of discussing discipleship to be reminded that for believers, this call of discipleship, this call to be a disciple, is not optional. It is synonymous with being a Christian. So if you claim you've placed your faith in Jesus, that means you are by definition a disciple of Jesus. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, that of course means you are given the call for discipleship. To be discipled, for that is just another way of saying following after and pursuing Christ. 
this is helpful for us to understand, for it removes any notion of applying the word disciple to just super-Christians. I've definitely had this mindset before where, where I view people who call themselves disciples as kind of weird. I mean, we don't really use that language anymore. When I hear people talk about discipling others, even now I think, really? Why aren't you just kind of hanging out? Why do you have to be so spiritual about this language? Right? But, but their language is actually quite biblical. And the term disciple is to be universally applied to all believers. Anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ is a disciple who is then called to make more disciples and help those disciples grow up in the faith. This is pretty straightforward. And I trust at this point in time I have not lost anyone in the process. And even at this point in time, there's some confusion that we might be experiencing. For while we understand what discipleship looked like for those 12, what on earth does it look like for regular people? I mean, for those disciples, being a disciple was pretty straightforward, right? They literally left their jobs to follow after Jesus. They heard the words of Jesus proclaimed. They saw miracles performed. But what happens to discipleship when there's no physical Jesus that you're following after? What context was the call to discipleship then placed into? Where, you might ask, were disciples then placed moving forward? Well, it's a good question you were asking. And thankfully, it's my next point. For as we move on beyond the Gospels and move specifically in the book of Acts chapter 2, we see the context for discipleship. We see where this took place from the get-go. And while it might initially seem somewhat confusing, we see that this was clearly the straightforward application that the apostles understood when fulfilling their mission to make disciples. Look with me, if you will, at Acts chapter 2. Ultimately, we'll be in verses 42 through 47, but for the sake of context and understanding what's happening, look back with me, if you will, to verse 37 through 41. There we see what's going on. For we read, now when they heard this, that is this message that the apostle Peter had given they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brethren what shall we do Peter said to them repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. What a glorious picture, isn't it? And what, what a great picture of what we expect to see in the book of Acts. For this book, following the ascension of Jesus Christ, tracks the efforts of the apostles to do exactly what they were called to do, that is, make disciples. And blessed by the sovereign hand of God, we see wild success of that disciple-making process. Acts chapter 2 being one of the most famous. For after giving a sermon, we are told that about 3,000 souls, 3,000 individuals come to Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the level of excitement that is? Can you imagine the level of excitement that must have characterized that early church, these new believers, these new disciples of Jesus? Now, having said that, 
if you read this passage and see this great conversion, you might assume that as disciples, these disciples then must follow Peter around, right? They must do exactly what Peter did with Jesus. They would get up, leave their homes, follow Peter around, see Peter preach, perform miracles, and that's what would define discipleship. But as you continue on in verse 42, you see the context of their then preceding growth is is far different from that. For having won 3,000 souls to Jesus, look what the apostles then do. Look at where these new converts are grown. Pick it up in verse 42, where we read, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And talk about an anticlimactic turn of events, right? 3,000 souls won to Christ. 3,000 disciples. Think of, think of the impact they could make on their surrounding city. Think of how many programs 3,000 new volunteers could run. Think. Think of the potential. Yeah, what are they busy, busying themselves doing? Church. And it's not an exaggeration, right? I mean, what activities are these new disciples then being funneled into for the sake of their own growth, for the sake of their pursuit of Christ? They're funneled into this context where they are continually hearing the word being taught, where they are enjoying time of fellowship, where they are breaking of bread, which I believe is communion, and where they are praying together. This is, for all intents and purposes, a church service. And it is this church service in which these new disciples are continually going to. Now, why would they do that? Why would they become Christians and then busy themselves with doing the type of work that isn't nearly as exciting as the rest of Acts? Well, the reason why they do that is because this was the process of discipleship to the early church. The immediate, primary context for the growth of new disciples is within the church. This should be no surprise to you if you've read through the rest of the New Testament. For the rest of the New Testament is not written to a bunch of people meandering around the Roman Empire. It's not written to a bunch of people who've quit their jobs and signed up for a thousand different events. It's written to everyday, average Christians who live in the same city they've probably always lived, who may have lost some family members because of persecution, but who have stayed put and who have been placed into the local church with other new and growing disciples. And it is in those local churches that they are governed by elders and deacons, where they hear the word of God preached, where they enjoy fellowship, where they enjoy communion, where they celebrate the baptism of new saints, and where they continue to pursue Christ as faithful disciples. Now, if you've only read the New Testament, it might be easy to assume that this early church clearly was forgetting the call that Jesus had given them. Surely Jesus had intended more for his people, and yet we see time and time again, no, this is the pattern of behavior, for it was the same thing the Jewish people of old did. Yes, they go out and they convert. Yes, they go out and share. But their faith, their growth, is centered around that all-important gathering of the saints. As we continue on and read in Acts chapter 2, we see that this went beyond just a weekly meeting, of course. From verse 43 of Acts 2, we read, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, 
Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see in these verses then that this discipleship, of course, did not only take place on a Sunday morning. For we see that as a result of coming together, there are relationships being built. And as those relationships are being built, they come together throughout the week. They do so not simply to hang out, they do so to take care of the needs of one another. They know each other well enough to know exactly what the other Christian is lacking, and they love each other enough to give that which was lacking. Once they build up their brothers and sisters, they actively participate. They come together, they praise God, they see signs and wonders being performed in this day and age. And as a result of all of these things, we see this context of discipleship to the early church. And this picture, while not immediately transferable to us, is so helpful, I think, for us when we talk about discipleship. And I say that because I think for many believers, myself included, when we think of discipleship, we think of programs, right? Churches come up with new discipleship programs. So here's another Bible study to learn how to be a disciple. Here's another outreach event where you can be a disciple. Here are 50,000 things that you can sign up for. And by signing up for these things, you therefore prove yourself to be a disciple. But that's not what discipleship is in the Bible. The discipleship isn't a program. Just as discipleship does not require you to literally leave everything behind, give up on all your responsibilities, and do so in the name of Jesus. Certainly some do that. But the call of discipleship is much more simple than that. And the context is much more practical. We saw the simplicity in that call. It's the simplicity of devotion. And here in Acts and throughout the New Testament, we see the context played out. It is the context of meeting together for church, of building one another up in church, and then relating to each other, loving one another throughout the week, only to then come back to as, as, as a community at the end of it all. Eventually, the look of these services changed. We understand it seems early on in church history, these individuals were gathering in the evening, it seems, which would have been a likely custom for Jews, and that was a large percentage of new converts, so it made sense that they would meet at the temple for the sake of being a part of a synagogue, for the sake of being a part of other believers. They just took the religious practice before and applied them to the Christian faith. That changes over time, as does the frequency of the meeting. For as we see in Acts chapter 2, at the beginning they were meeting just day in and day out. But as you continue to read through the book of Acts, you see in passages like Acts chapter 20, verse 7. In fact, turn with me if you will there. In Acts chapter 20, you see language like this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged the message until midnight. Again, you see this idea of the central day, the first day of the week, that which we still do today, Sunday. 
It's intended to be the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection. We gather together in preparation for all that God has in store for us that coming week. We do that not because it just works with our own American calendar. We do it because that's what believers have always done. They gather on the Lord's Day to celebrate the start of a new week, to celebrate all that God has in store. That same language, that same practice is carried on throughout the New Testament epistles. And you see the assumption that throughout the New Testament days, the church is regularly, specifically on the Lord's Day, gathering together. And they do so, not simply for the sake of going to church, they do so because they understand that's discipleship. The relationships they gain there, that's discipleship. The preaching of the word is discipleship. The singing of praise songs is discipleship. All these things factor into it because discipleship, again, is not a program. It's the way of life for the believer. And so everything is intended to force us forward in our ongoing pursuit of Jesus Christ. These New Testament apostles then in this early church We're not failing to live up to the calling of Jesus, certainly not. Nor were they falling down on the job of being disciples. Similarly, you're not failing as a disciple just because you work a regular nine-to-five job. That's the vast majority of believers. We have jobs. Many of us have families. We have responsibilities. That's not failing to be a disciple. That's living out the calling that God has given us and in the midst of our jobs, in the midst of all those other responsibilities, we are still placing Christ above all else. And so we do our jobs for the glory of Jesus Christ. We do our jobs hoping that that God can use us to win more disciples there. But we do it all as his disciples. Yet still here, as you understand that simple context of discipleship, There's a danger that we can fall into. For just as the pendulum might swing wildly to one side of of a lifestyle in which you can't have a regular job, in which you can't have a family because being a disciple trumps all that, here again, the pendulum can swing wildly back the other direction and it can speak of discipleship being some apathetic, uh, passive event that just happens to us. That is, we are disciples, we gather together for church where someone speaks at us, where we meet with others, but that's it. But again, that extreme falls short of understanding what the concept of discipleship means and what it requires for us. To help see that, though, we must not just understand the call that we've been given, nor must we appreciate the context that is the local church, but we must finally understand what the work of discipleship looked like, what was expected of every single believer, men, women, and children. To see that, I want us to move ahead from Acts and jump ahead to a later text, the book of Hebrews. From the book of Hebrews, we see again a few helpful glimpses of what discipleship was intended to include and what it required from every single Christian or disciple. The passage I want to specifically look at is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. There in the midst of this text, we'll begin by reading 19 through 23, where we see the audience and the concern of the author. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And answering the question of who is this letter written to, we see the answer in essence there in verse 19 and following. It's, it's written to disciples, by which I simply mean it's written to Christians. Now that should be somewhat obvious perhaps, but again it's worth noting. He speaks of them as brethren, think brothers, sisters in Christ. And on top of that, he affirms the, the faith that they have professed. He affirms the idea that they have the ability to approach God. As you read throughout the book of Hebrews, you see the author uses all this imagery from the Old Testament, this imagery of of entering into the temple, entering before the presence of God in the most holy of places. And in speaking of that imagery, the author of Hebrews continually says, you as New Testament believers have the ability to do something that Jews of the Old Testament could not do. For the Jews of the Old Testament could not just enter into the presence of God. No, that was reserved for only a few elect, those few priests, specifically the high priest. But you, believer, because of the blood and body of Jesus Christ, you have the ability to come before God whenever you choose. You have the ability to freely worship Him. You have the confidence in knowing that if you are in Christ, if you are a real disciple of Christ, your heart has been purified. That is a deeply encouraging note. Yet despite that encouragement, there is clearly a real concern at work for as we came to the end of those verses, we read this command to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now why would the author need to say that to genuine disciples of Jesus? Why would he need to remind them both of their ability to pursue Christ as disciples but also the need to to continually pursue them so that they would not waver. Well, the concern is quite clear. He's concerned that they are wavering. He has real questions over their perseverance, over their own faithfulness. The concern seems justified as you read throughout the book of Hebrews for these individuals, it seems, are struggling greatly. You see that earlier in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 and a similar command. Hebrews chapter 3, feel free to turn back there if you will. The author speaks of this danger of of losing faith, of losing sight of what has saved us. And speaking of that danger, the author says, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is some debate as to what was causing these believers to waver, but at the heart of it all, most assume it was... It was some form of persecution. It was becoming increasingly dangerous, increasingly painful to be a disciple of Christ. It was becoming increasingly obvious that carrying their cross was not always just a metaphor that really could mean their own death. And as a result of this persecution, these believers are starting to slink back a bit, trying to maybe not deny Christ, but see if they can still have the benefits without putting themselves on the line, without making themselves known. And one of the easiest ways to do that, of course, was to stop fellowshipping with other believers. 
where that would be the most obvious way to, to separate yourself. Many people in our culture today feel that same temptation. But it's not typically because of persecution, is it? That certainly comes into play, and I think we'll see that persecution continue as the world continues to drift. But in our own culture, this wavering tends to come more about as a result of just apathy, of ease. You saw the clear fruit of this through the COVID era that we just lived through and are still facing. Throughout that season, countless people who had before been faithful church attenders figured out something quite magical. They could turn on their TV, they could log in to the internet, and they could watch church online. And many professing believers were coaxed into believing that this somehow was enough, that this qualified as church, that this qualified as discipleship. The reality was far from that. And even now, churches are seeing the evidence of that as so many of those people have just continued to drift away. They haven't come back. They realize that, well, it's a lot easier just to stay at home on Sunday. It's a lot easier to get a little bit of extra rest in. They can get a lot of work done. And so they drift. They waver. They reveal that perhaps, perhaps that profession of discipleship wasn't genuine. Some of us in here can fall prey to the same thing. We can fall prey to the idea that the discipleship, again, is some option that only the super mature have to take advantage of and so when other things come up that come in the way well we always choose that other thing when it turns out that we don't love everyone that's been assigned the group project with us we can say well i don't really like that person but i like these people so i'll hang out with the disciples that i like already that i'm friends with and then that counts right no because that's not discipleship that's not the church that's a group of friends that already share everything in common and that's just a sad excuse, a substitution. That's not the community that God intended us to be a part of. Whatever it is, believer, there are endless reasons why we can be given to justify separating ourselves off from other believers. But do not miss the fact that this is the predictable, constant pattern of our enemy, Satan. For Satan is always at work bringing about discouragement for believers, using that discouragement to divide the people, and in that division, we become easy targets for our enemy who roars like a, like a lion on the prowl. When we choose to disfellowship from other believers, when we choose to say, I like this one, but not that one, we are saying to Satan, come and get me, Satan. I'm easy prey. For we're separating ourselves from this call of discipleship, and this is clearly what the believers in Hebrews were in danger of doing. And so in order to correct this dangerous habit of separating themselves off, the author reminds them again what work they are all called to do, what work they must accomplish for the sake of staying faithful, and that work is discipleship. Look with me, if you will, and see verse 23 through 25. Again, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, and here is one of the primary means, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own, assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You want to make sure you are faithful in your discipleship? You want to make sure that you are flourishing, that you are growing as God calls you? Well, the answer isn't just another Bible study. 
The answer isn't your personal quiet time with Jesus in the morning. That's great. That's important. But the primary context of your discipleship, the essential work you are called to do, are not private spiritual disciplines. It is corporate fellowship. It is fellowship that is characterized as gathering together, the language here is literally as a synagogue, as a local church, and as you do so, you do so not just simply as someone who is receiving teaching, but you're going out of the way to stimulate others, to provoke others, is what he's saying. To make sure that you're building them up. You're giving them the word that they need in that day so that there's no evil, unbelieving heart, as the Hebrews author said earlier in Hebrews 3. You're making sure that you're giving that brother or sister the encouragement that they need in that moment. And as you do so, you do not do so out of pride, thinking you are somehow more special than them. You also look to be encouraged yourself. For you know, as much as they need you, you also need them. You may have nothing else in common with that person. You may root for a different football team. You might have love for a different author. You might vote for a different politician. But you have Christ. That's the only thing that matters. That and that alone should be enough to unite you, cause you to build them up, cause you to love them desperately and understand that you are called then to be at work in their lives, to lift them up, to help provide for them and you do so all in matter of discipleship. There are a lot of areas where we can do this, of course, and we are blessed by the fact that we live in a culture where we can meet together whenever we want. We can form however many Bible studies we want. We can go out and have how many mission trips we want. But at the most foundational level, we must remember that this is to take place here, at the chapel, in community, as the chapel, with a diverse group of people that we would otherwise never be around, that we would otherwise never choose to work with, but who, by the sovereign, providential hand of God, has been placed in the pew next to you, and who is your dear brother or sister, and who you are called to build up. And so that is why, as a chapel, we honestly are painstakingly trying to think through, how can we encourage this more? How can we be that community we claim to be in our mission statement? That community of, of worshipers of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, as leaders, we can only do so much. We can only provide so many small groups. We can only provide so many words of encouragement for you to, to be involved, but it requires participation from everyone. It requires a willingness to come on Sunday morning, a willingness to genuinely get to know your fellow believers here, a willingness to be vulnerable and admit that you don't have it all together, that you need someone else's help, a willingness to confess your sins to one another, ask them to hold you accountable, a willingness to study the word with other people, praise God with one another. Again, we are blessed to have that ability here on Sunday morning. We're blessed to have other things like small groups. And small groups are intended to be a microcosm of this community. For in small groups, ideally, you're not just gathering with a bunch of people that are just like you. You are surrounded by other diverse believers, men and women, different ages, different backgrounds, who all have something that you need. And so, believers, sign up for them. Be a part of those groups. Strive to make sure that you are plugged into this community. Because the reality is, is that you will either be discipled here at the chapel or you will be discipled by the world around us. 
And so we must strive to make sure we are fulfilling our calling that's given to all of us. We're doing so as members of the church, and we're doing so understanding the work is work that requires effort on our own part. The point in all of this, of course, is that discipleship is a call to every single Christian. And while I again hate to say it, discipleship is by definition a group project. That group project will bring you frustration. It will require sacrifice. It will require effort. But it will result. It will result in the growth of your own faith, the growth of our own community, and a growing reputation in our surrounding community that can see us, not as just another church, but as a community of real disciples of Jesus Christ, dedicated to his glory, desiring to lovingly serve one another, and doing it all to the praise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in considering all this, unbeliever, much of this does not apply to you. And so please hear me when I say, your call really begins back in that Luke 9 passage. I pray you understand that as we speak of all this, I'm not just speaking of some additional social program that can lead to more success, greater happiness, a group of friends. That's not what church membership is, that's not what discipleship is. If you want to be a part of it, you must die to self. You must understand that you are a sinner on the road to hell. And apart from professing faith in Jesus Christ, that is trust in His finished work on the cross and His resurrection, repenting of your sins, turning away from that, and following after Him, you are damned. And so please, unbeliever, hear that. Hear the offer that Jesus is giving you. Be saved today. And in so doing, be a disciple. For my fellow disciples, let this be a reminder of the calling we've all been given and let us feel the weight of it. Let us remember that this is not an optional calling. This is what is to define us. And let us in turn take that seriously and strive to look for ways to get plugged in here at the chapel. Serve at the chapel. Encourage at the chapel. And do so knowing you're not just doing it as a member of Cape Bible Chapel. You're doing it as the member of the kingdom of heaven. And there is no greater calling than that. Let's close in prayer as the band comes back up and we worship God. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for this call to discipleship. We thank you, God, for the clear speech of Jesus. That is a reminder that we are called to be devoted to you, God. And that there's no option other than that. I pray that we might take that seriously. As always, I pray for those who are unbelievers. God, save them today by that calling. Might we as a chapel strive to be the community you call us to do. Might we strive to be the community that we claim we are. But in so doing, Lord, might we understand that it requires the work of every single one of us. Regardless of how mature we are, regardless of how confident we might be in the faith, God, we are called to build one another up day in and day out. Might we do so with humility. Might we do so with grace. And as a result, might we see your hand at work through us, God. We love you and we praise you. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.